0: Boxcutters episode 246 was recorded in front of a live studio audience.
1: Boxcutters, Boxcutters, Boxcutters,
0: Box
2: so shameless. So utterly shameless. I feel ashamed and a little bit too pleased. Uh, Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Box Cutters coming to you from AussieCon 4, the 68th World Science Fiction Convention here at the beautiful Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. My name is John Richards. I am one of the hosts of Box Cutters. I'm also the writer of the comedy series Outland, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say will be the Best narrative comedy about a gay and lesbian science fiction fan club you will see on ABC One all of next year. <laughs> uh, that is just a shameless plug, but if I don't do that. The ABC gets angry. I'll uh, oh, to my to my, so I've, I've done what we normally do. Is to my left, to my right, but I forgot to actually cross off the one that you aren't. You're on my left. On Hang on. The left. There go. To my left is my box colours cohort media guru barrel girl Josh Kenal.
0: Thank you, Daryl. <laughs> Is this? No, I I actually. I don't know. I've never done one of those things before. I've never done one of the. uh, Having an audience is freaky. I know, but I want to have that applause every
2: time. I know. Can you applaud but keep your eyes closed? (laughs) (laughs) I love this. I also need to ask you: Is this the first time you've ever been to a science fiction convention? It is. It is the first time. So lightweight.
0: (laughs) Totally, I'm totally a congen or whatever I would call that. Convergent, I would, but congen. Yeah, I like Conjun so, I'm going to get Conjun on a t-shirt <laughs> Who would buy a Conjun t-shirt? <laughs> I don't build that. Okay, that's one Sad <laughs> See you there after So, Boxcutters
2: A show all about television Today's panel Topic, as you may have read In the program Is writing Doctor Who We don't have time to write Doctor Who now But here's some men Who wrote it earlier <laughs> I was so pleased When I wrote that down <laughs> So, to my right Or to your left If you're listening at home uh, Paul Cornell is a writer of television, he's written novels, he's written comics, as well as Doctor Who, his TV credits include Robin Hood, Primeval, the supernatural soap opera Spring Hill, uh, as well as non-genre fare like Doctors, Casualty, Holby City, Coronation Street, and our favourite 1950s rural drama, Born and Bred. Uh, He also created... (laughs) He also created the medical horror series Pulse, but we're not... not, not, uh? Don't mention the P word.
0: I I have... Sorry, just... I have actually cut my hand right there. Anyone who's seen the pilot of Pulse, I have cut my hand right there, and will never find out what that means. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, he's written many comic titles, including Captain Britain, Dark X-Men, and The Granddaddy of the all. Mort- Uh, action comics in the world of Doctor Who which we should probably mention he wrote the Christopher Eccleston story Father's Day the David Tennant two-parter Human Nature and Family Blood all of them were Hugo nominated he's a bit obsessed with the Hugo they keep giving him Hugo nominations (laughs) (laughs) and also the 2003 web series Scream of the Shalka and numerous books and audios he created uh, Burning Summerfield he wrote the novel Something More in British Summertime he's been nominated for two Hugo Awards this year which seems excessive yeah, he's up for best novelette and best graphic story. Novelette's not even a thing. Will you please welcome Paul Cornell?
0: John, can I, yeah. can I have a go at this? Yeah, 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 yeah. And to his right, Rob Shearman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. What? Is that not. You've got a whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Hold that applause. I've got to mention the
2: Shirley Jackson Award. The Shirley Bassey Award. The Shirley Bassey Award. Rob Sherman, acclaimed playwright, radio dramatist and short story... Guy, maker, he, b- b- builder. He's written dozens of works for theatre and radio, two highly acclaimed collections short stories, Tiny Deaths, and, of course, Love Songs for Shine and Cynical, which won the Shirley Bassey Award only recently. In the World Doctor Who, he's written several big Finnish audios, including Jubilee, Terms of Midnight, Deadline, Holy Terror, and My, Pri- my Private Wolfgang, is it? My I don't v- remember. That, that's my favourite. That's great. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh, Mozart doesn't exist. It's brilliant. It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It he also brought the Daleks back for, to terrify a whole new generation with 2005's Dalek. Probably the scariest thing he's written, except, of course, for that episode of 50s rural drama, Born and Bred.
1: <laughs> was it uh, really
3: popular over here? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> no. Strange, because uh, it's very popular with us. I, to, uh, <laughs>
0: to, to, to prove that point, John said, um, they've both written for Born and Bred. Yeah. And, uh, and I went. Okay. You, I, I should point out, I wrote justly
2: forgotten 1950s uh, drama and my boyfriend made me cross it out. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's just being mean. <laughs> He's so controlling. He's won every award you could think of and some I've just made up. Robert Shearman. Yeah. So, mine is quicker. Yeah, yeah also yours was better. Um, you I have obviously... the be you know, We're here to write, talk about running Doctor Who. Obvious first question has to be, did you know each other when you were working on Born and Bred? I mean, is it just.
3: <laughs> did, did you meet that way? Is all actually, British television written by the same 12 actually, people? Actually, I was threatened with the sack for maybe going to Paul's wedding. Mm. And that was really bad, actually, because I, cause, cause you invited me to your wedding.
1: We, we had a little and, chair yeah. there with just a sign in front saying Robert Shearman yeah. and nothing. Yeah, and, and I got this email
3: back. You know, and I was looking forward to Paul's wedding because I'm fond of Paul, really. And I, I thought this would be great. <laughs> and also, I could stop writing Born and Bred for a few hours. And, they, and I had this emergency meeting, and they said, your latest script is so poor that if you don't actually do a complete turnaround by Monday, we will actually sack you on Monday. And I, had to, I said, but I'm going to the wedding. I said, you're not. Because if, if you go to the wedding, and we even hear you've been at the wedding, we will sack you. And so Paul wrote to me and said, I can probably pull a few strings here. Didn't you? Do you remember that? Well,
1: I did my best to pull a few strings. The strings turned out to be non-existent. More because,
3: because my draft was actually that bad that Paul couldn't pull the strings. Oh. And so it was bad, actually. So, yeah, I mean, Paul and I were friends before that. And indeed, somehow, strangely, through it.
1: And somehow, strangely, subsequently.
3: Yeah. Did, did you
1: finish the episode? Did it go anywhere?
3: Uh, we both finished our episodes, and then we were both sacked, which was <laughs> tremendous. I, actually, it, it comes back to Doctor Who in a way, because I got sacked in part because after the first read-through for my episode, my first one that I was doing, um, the producer on the show... I can say this, can't I? Yes, of course I can. Yeah. The producer on the show was a chap called Chris Cuff, and Chris Cuff was the director of certain notorious Doctor Who episodes in the 1980s, um, you know, back on the old show, obviously it was before, the new show was was revived, and I told him, I said to him, I said, you know, you've actually directed Toe of the Verbal it's the Happiness Patrol, Silver Nemesis, everything you touched on Doctor Who was rubbish, <laughs> um, because it was in the bar, and I thought in the bar things were different. <laughs> And I got sacked a week later. Now, I don't think there's any relation to that, because my episode was obviously brilliant. Um, So that was probably it. I I had a scene in my episode. Did you have any scenes in your episode? Yeah. um, I had a few Doctor Who references. But actually, a lot of mine just got rewritten, and I was just relieved. I, I, I remember having a sort of mini party the night it went out by not watching it, which was, which was really, really, good. I, I it's did, terrible. I didn't, I didn't watch it
1: either. I just gave the DVD to my dad.
3: Wasn't there lots of... I didn't bother watching yours. Wasn't there lots of... Um, <laughs> <laughs> lots of naked women the, dancing in yours? That life? was my scene. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's
1: really good. The, the rest yeah. of it's written by other people. Yeah. My one scene is these. Did, the... you,
3: did you ever get a DVD sent to you by the BBC? I did. Because I didn't. I gave it to my dad. Because <laughs> Chris Cuff wouldn't let me have one oh. because I think I have offended him too much. Yeah. <laughs>
0: See,
1: oh, We walk reap- away and they stop talking about Born and Bread <laughs> no. you, you sow
3: the whirlwind, you reap the whirlwind uh, no, no. It's the world's first Born and no. Bread convention <laughs> Seriously, if you ever get a chance to watch Born and Bread, don't, don't. Yeah. don't. <laughs>
0: But I'm, I'm going to get that on t t-shirt, Born and Bread convention Who, who wants that on t t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> right, no. One, back there, two it's more than conviction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, let's, let's,
2: look, let's talk about Doctor Who. Why not? Okay.
0: Um, they don't want to hear about
2: that. I, look, I'll work it in. Um, I'm kind of... What I'm curious about is, back in the day, right, back in the old school world of Doctor Who, it was being written by people who were... They were jobbing TV writers. It was another job on their plate. You know, it was, just, it was a yet another TV show they did between, you know, Compact and something else I can't think of. And... When it came for the revival, it's, it's pretty much been written by people who grew up as fans. Yeah, fans there. So how did you... Because you both wrote for the first series back. How did you get the call? Was there? I mean, how did you know what was going on?
1: Yeah, well, at my wedding, Russell T. Davis wrote out the second lesson. Moffitt was the best man. And um, it, it was really about who was at my wedding. Unfortunately, Rob...
3: <laughs> had a chair. <laughs> I, I, I had a chair, yeah. You were writing Born and Bred instead. I was writing Born and Bred. Yeah. No, 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 yeah.
1: But no, no, no. Um, we... A whole bunch of us were uh, writers on the spinoffery, the audios and the books, in the 15-year gap between the old show and the new, and we kind of all grew up together as writers and sort of... uh, Russell picked and chose from that bunch of people and also from, you know, TV writers who... You know, I I, I learnt... I made myself learn how to write television so that when Doctor Who returned, I would be able to write for it. (laughs) That's that's the greatest thing I've ever heard Thank you. that is and, um, you know it's uh, it was a combination of the fanish stuff and the um, TV writer stuff that he yeah. picked from so you know we all gradually got mm. the idea that we were getting the call you I, got the I, call on the bus didn't you
3: I, I, I yeah I, it was actually a rather embarrassing story of sorts I mean it, it's, it's that funny thing that I just changed agents to actually an Australian agent who I've subsequently parted company with actually bless her heart but um but she didn't know what Doctor Who really was. And I had a, one of those sort of big meetings that, that you do where you, you act like a selfish git and you say things like, I'm not doing any more subsequent born and bred related drama. Um, I will only now do my own... Special self-created television shows. So I was on a bus and I got a phone call from her saying, yeah, um, you won't actually go for this, but um, I had a phone call from BBC Wales and they said that they wanted you to do something called Doctor Who, but I've, I've, I've interpreted that you weren't <gasps> really interested. And, and I said, yeah. And she said, and, and actually, and I said, well, this is for a meeting. She said, no, it's not for a meeting. They're actually offering you an episode right now. It's episode six and you're bringing back something called the da da I don't know <laughs> it sounds rubbish um, and she and I said call them back now she said, no 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 point now because I said call them back now if on the answer machine of course I'll do it and I was very very excited and of course actually the problem is you can't tell anybody except the other writers so so we would went out and had a curry very, very quickly, really, didn't we? Mm. We all very celebrated it. quite a lot. Yes. And, we all, and, and actually, you know, and, it was, and we know the name of the restaurant the now. The Tula. It was, it was the Chula. And we all had a bet, Mark Gatiss, Paul, Stephen and I, about who would get it into their script first. Which, of course, Moffat won, mm. <laughs> because he's Moffat. So, mm. did, yeah. Did you know it was coming back? Like, was it rumoured? Uh, you were aware
1: that
2: it was on the yeah. way? Yeah, vaguely. Russell,
1: called, Russell called me up and, uh, way beforehand and said he was terribly sorry that we wouldn't be doing any more... Um, Scream of the Schalke style Doctor Who animations, because they were bringing back Doctor Who, which is a measure of the man that he was. He thought about how we would feel about losing the animation, which honestly I thought that was a reasonable price to pay. <laughs> and um, you know, uh, and, and he said, if you're not, and if you're not careful, well, bye. And <laughs> and you know, I wondered for months how careful I had to be. Yeah. And um, you know, it's. Uh, we all b- gradually became aware of who was doing it. You know, it's uh, goodness. These framed stories that we've got so. I, I
3: know, it's odd because we've been telling these stories for the last five or six years. But I mean, but looking back at it really honestly, I had believed that Doctor Who, in 2003, when it was actually announced, I was certain it was dead forever. And in fact, I was actually fairly certain because we were both doing audios and the books and things that it wouldn't survive much longer. I thought that actually it was beginning to be a little bit ailing. The, the sales were going down a bit, I think. And I, I remember being quite depressed about it because it was a big anniversary that year. And thinking, we we won't get another anniversary like this. And then when they announced it, and I'd heard rumours, but I was a little bit, I, I hadn't got the same, I, I'd, I'd actually never met Russell. So, I mean, that was, that was utterly new to me. And when I heard the, the actual news, and I got people, you know, phone calls from friends who knew I was doing Doctor Who and also wrote television, and said, Well, you're beyond that. And I said, There's not a chance in hell of that happening. And I was so certain of that that actually, when I got the call, when I began to hear that that might be happening anyway, I was just, I, I, I refused to believe it. And I went to my very first meeting at the BBC about it. And I genuinely did this. And I went into the meeting in London. And there was Russell T. Davis there, I'd never met him before. Julie Gardner, new exec, I'd never met her before. Phil Conson, the producer, producer born and bred, but we actually hadn't even met him before. And, um, <laughs> and I was certain I'd go in the room and they'd go, Oh, right. Oh, look, here's the fare for your train. It's lovely to see you. We did get the wrong guy. <laughs> um, but well done, don't tell anyone about what's going on. And I, and I was certain that would happen for the whole first hour. I was sat there in the meeting, and they asked me about what I was doing, and I tried to answer what I thought might be the correct answers, and they said, no, it's not a quiz, you know. it's like you're just <laughs> 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 and, and then eventually I went home, and I spent the next few months always believing, actually, that at some point. There would be that inevitable phone call saying, we didn't really mean you. Um, but bless your heart for trying <laughs> And it just didn't quite come I mean we got other bad phone calls But um, we didn't get that one You know, And, and, and also I think we,
1: we, we found Robert Sharman He's been in touch
3: we, yeah. it's <laughs> all
1: yeah.
3: Robert Sharman's far better than you it, it was also that sort of thing though Because Paul and I both knew that being Doctor Who fans And you know too much about Doctor Who in the past Every season of Doctor Who right back from the, you know, the Hartnell days, and, and, and of course you learn all this because we're anal obsessives, is littered with casualty scripts. That, that There's almost no instance of a series of writers being approached at the beginning of a season, all of whom survived to the end. Mm-hmm. And we did, actually. It was, it was astonishing. But we, I kept on thinking, I'm going to be at one point in a footnote of some fan-written Doctor Who thing about I, the casualty scripts of Doctor Who. I,
1: I would. Um, I added to a couple of my emails back and forth with Russell. Hello, Andrew Pixley. A hello to the uh, great um, archivist of Doctor Who, so that he would one day be leafing oh, yeah. through the. Papers <laughs> <laughs> and, ah. and
3: actually, it's absolutely right. Um, I mean, the, the, at the time of time of my of, of my worst crisis on the show, which is when they removed the dialects for a while because we hadn't got the rights for a while, and I had to do another script very very quickly, which in fact involved the. Uh, um, I wrote it fairly certain that it wouldn't work and fairly certain that I was about to get sacked. But I thought, what I will do is I'll give it a very, very funny title so that at least nothing else, when they look through, they'll go, oh, yeah, that's rather well, funny that, that that show got... So I called it Absence of the Daleks, because I thought that was hilarious. An and I thought that, that the one day Andrew Pixie and all these archivists would go, would go, I bet that was really, really bollocks. But it's got a funny title. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I see that, you saying that, that, that whole, the whole the
2: 2005 series oh, was yeah, written just,
3: for yeah. and,
1: Andrew Pixley.
2: You, you're effectively writing it all for. We, this, yeah, yeah. we do
1: write it for Andrew
3: Pixley yeah, the,
2: the,
1: that. The, 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 night, the night we um, lost, he lost the Daleks. Mm. I got a text message from him that was so long it took three separate texts to deliver, and it included the word
3: intrinsically. <laughs> It's strange, it's not actually on, on text prediction intrinsically, it's very strange. Actually, I, I wrote more on that than I did actually at the time on the new draft, it was strange. But...
0: I want to I know about the wilderness years
1: of Doctor Who. The, the theme park years.
3: <laughs> but you know, wilderness
1: has nothing in it, it is really boring, and the 15 years between Old Who and New Who were filled with exciting stuff. Well,
0: and this is, this, this is what I want to know, because the, the uh, you know, loving television, as I do, and I do intrigue Intrinsically, and if it was legal, would marry it. Uh, Ah, yeah, I used intrinsically. Um, It's a good word. It's a great word. Use it a lot. Yeah. T shirt, T shirt. T shirt. Who'd buy an intrinsically t shirt? Can you use it in a sentence? Ah, most popular yet. Uh, uh, You don't have the the confines of of having to write for television, for the budget, for something that needs to be visual, so you've got a lot more. Free reign. So, because you both started with Doctor Who in that sense, and then uh, and then had to write for the screen, how did how did that
1: constriction work for you? Do you want to go first? Um, one? We wrote for tiny, tiny, uh, tiny, tiny budgets, and Russell had to keep saying, "No, we need have a bit more money. No, more than that. That's Bigger. <laughs> Get out of the four walls. You know, <laughs> give us a, give us some monsters that could actually be monstrous."
3: oh, actually, that's right, yeah, I forgot that. I, I remember my very, very first meeting when I delivered the first draft of Dalek, and they, and they, and they were very, very polite, which is always a bad sign. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, how do we break it to him that actually it's rubbish? And, and they just said to me, um, it's really good, but what you've actually done is you've written a sort of 1960s Theatrical script because you think we have no cash. We have cash. Um, <laughs> look, and, actually, and Phil Collinson took me over to a TV and said, "Look, here's an example of CGI effects." Yeah, she did that, and he said, "This is the things that we can do nowadays." I said, "Whoa, you can actually have special effects and things." Because, because actually, in some strange way, not only I suppose we'll be trapped in the idea of doing you know relatively. Uh, minor things, I suppose, in the, in what you so rudely call the wilderness years. Um, so we also that, that, that was me. Don't blame John yeah, for that. No, that but was, I'm still blaming John. Yeah, fair enough. Because, you know, that's, that's what I do. But actually also I think that inevitably we look back at Doctor Who and we were big fans of it, and we began to think of ourselves back in that mindset of what we loved about it from the 1970s. And actually it was Russell who... The, the first important thing Russell said in that meeting... To me, I'm sure he said it to all of us actually, it was one on one things. He said, I'm going to make you write the doctors saying things like wanna and to not want to and going to, to make you realize how colloquial this has to be. And I was, you know, I'm quite prissy, and I said, I don't think I'm going to say wanna and 'gonna' <laughs> because <laughs> I've had a grammar school education. But, um, <laughs> but he was absolutely right. It was that it, the, the hardest thing in some ways was trying not to write... I mean, we all have a sort of um, default Doctor style. Mm. My problem now, because I I did a little thing for Big Finish years afterwards, just for fun, and I couldn't get back into writing an old Doctor again because the young... You know, because the whole modern Doctor is so much more. You know, the whole Chris, David, and now Matt. It's all about just being uh, modern day. And actually trying to write Colin Baker now is actually very, very difficult. Mm. But but I think it was that first impulse, you know, that you don't open a a TARDIS scene with the Doctor and Rose playing chess... Which is kind of actually what we were warned about, you know. It's, is is that what you did? I actually, someone else did. I heard. Well, what else do you do in a Tardis? I think I think <laughs> Fry did actually, but that's, oh yeah yeah yeah, right, yeah yeah. But yeah, but that's right. I mean, it's the whole idea actually of Riggy just not making it, so it's some sort of sort of old, rather um, a, a, a sort of a man just talking in long words for the sake of it and being very very cleverer than anyone else, and I, you know, and also therefore wearing the. Um, leather jacket that Chris did was a reaction against all those sort of really eccentric costumes it had in the past which you know um, I think worked actually you know it was so
2: what were you told for the doctor though what were you told to write as the character of the doctor
3: you, you go first.
1: well we, we started writing before Chris was cast um, so we had the doctor from Russell's pilot script to go on so it was about writing that character really um, and he's very much there in all respects in that script. It's very easy to follow that lead.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's, I mean, the awkwardness in part was, I suppose, that when, that, when the script first arrived on the doorstep, you know, and you, and you open it, it was just before Christmas 2003, and reading it and being astonished by how modern it seemed. Mm-hmm. Also, so excited by the fact that it was there, and actually, that it was actually so good.
1: Yeah, and, but, and the, the word we kept saying to each other was relief.
3: Relief, absolutely. Yes. Because, you know, the, you know the, the, the whole investment with TV stuff, I mean, you know, born and bred aside, the thing about that is that you work on the show and you go into meetings and you'll be talking to your editor and there'll be a sort of tacit acknowledgement that you know it's actually awful, but you can't really say that. But with this show, we were so... Dependent, I suppose, upon its success, because we didn't want to be the ones who'd killed the mm. only last revival it could have. Was that was that a worry? Was it, was, oh yeah.
2: Did,
1: did you think this may be one series and that's it? Russell actually said to me, "Paul, don't feel bad if by the time we get to your episode, we're not on BBC One and not in prime time." Yeah. Um, that was the level of fear as to Russell at the time thought six million would be major victory, ten million changed BBC television forever. British television. Um, he actually said to me once, that's done it now, That those numbers on that opening night. Somebody in 50 years' time will be able to bring it back now.
3: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Russell's concern, I think, was that, you know, that songs at the end of the day, he said to me, if we can have a DVD box set that we alone can watch in our bedrooms in 20 years' time and say, well, we killed it. But, but we were proud of what we tried to do, then actually that was the, worth, the worthwhile thing. And it meant that as a result there was that strange game going on for that first year about, you know, not wanting alien planets because it might put off the audience, not wanting to refer to marginal continuity things, because that might put off the audience. But actually, at the same time, not being ashamed of Doctor Who. It was, it was actually, it was Russell who kept making us put things back in, you know, so that I was not wanting to acknowledge lots of things. He said, he said to me to read-through, he said, we have to, you know, if we go, if we want to mention the Dravins, let's just do it. Dravins are from Galaxy 4 in mm-hmm. just letting you know. Um, because actually, he said, we have to be in love with this show, even if actually the people around us and at the BBC, I think they were a bit were a bit more suspicious of it. So he said, you know, whatever it is, it is we adore this show, and we're the ones on the show because we adore it. You know, other writers will be out there knocking on the doors, and indeed, of course, were later, who weren't fans of the old show. But, but you know, we had this investment about just making, it, making sure that we could see it as a continuation.
2: Speaking of fear on, on that side, though, what, was there a concern, because actors, especially an old school Doctor Who used to say that uh, they were typecast and, and you know, they're going to never play Teagan. And was there ever a concern that, um, that as writers you were going, I don't want to be that Doctor Who guy?
1: Well, here I am seven years later. Um, <laughs> it's, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of feel like that. I'm tremendously proud of having been on the show and will always be available for selection by it. But um, you know, I, I kind of—I find myself starting to to want to be known for other things. This is nobody else's fault but mine. As soon as I do something big and useful and anything else, then I will become known as that guy who does that other thing. Hopefully,
2: I but, should actually point out for the listeners that uh, Paul Cornell is actually wearing a tuxedo uh, yeah. as well. So, as far as overcompensating goes, I'm, <laughs>
3: <laughs> but the, I, I'm wearing a very nice shirt. I, think I want to say. No, I mean the, and that, and that, the thing, So sorry, yeah. the, the thing about. Uh, you know, always being
0: that guy. How many opportunities are there for you to uh, to reach out past that to uh, to become something else?
3: Oh, Rob, you've done a lot of theatre. Uh, actually, it, it changed. Actually, that was hard because the difficulty was before that I'd spent most of my career about 10, 11 years or so. I was exclusively a theatre writer, and I did quite well in theatre. And I was getting a bit of a, of a reputation for being quite good. And I would be directing as well, and I'd direct abroad, and doing high profile television was actually suddenly seen by a lot of people as a massive betrayal. And I never wrote theatre again, until actually now. I'm, I'm doing some theatre again for the first time in many years. And I found that terribly hard, and actually very upsetting, because I loved Doctor Who, and I couldn't see why I couldn't do both. And I went through a little bit of a crisis time after Doctor Who, thinking, I don't want to do this again immediately, actually, because I didn't want to be redefined by a show that... I, that I love but I'm basically a comedy writer and dark is not the most funny thing in the world and and I began to be offered tv shows basically also doing action adventure things and I said I don't do action adventure I got away with it once I can't do that again and I, and I found myself in a sense of some desperation turning to prose and I was you know I'd always said I'd never write prose I never thought I could do it but at 37 I wrote my first book and Doctor Who in some ways enabled that career change to happen, and also actually to find an audience for it. So I'm desperately grateful to Doctor Who for it, at the same time trying to resist the label of being the guy who did Dalek. And that said, though, I mean, I'm aware that if anyone buys my book, I always draw a Dalek inside it. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I, also, I also feel that's probably why they're buying it.
2: And with you, Paul, what, I mean, what doors did it open and what did it close?
1: Um, it, it doesn't close anything professionally in terms of... I, I was offered a lot more. We've, I've got to say that, that... Um, it really helped. It got me into comics. Um, it allowed me to um, write a lot more television. Um, I'm kind of... My, my feeling is uh, there's a couple more interesting things left that I might still do in telly, and there's a couple of really juicy things that are just over there that suddenly I'll start that, and, all oh, that will be my life again for the next four years. But it's equally possible that I might now decide that this is the point I can stop and just spend the rest of my life writing comics and prose. So,
0: had you done any 2000 AD before you did Doctor Who? Or you hadn't done any comics at all?
1: Um, I'd I'd done some British comics for Doctor Who magazine and for the 2000 AD magazine. Um, But, no, um, actually I got... This is an easy way into writing for comics that um, I think anybody can um, can copy this route in. (laughs) Um, The the great um, British comic writer Mark Millar... Um, sent me an email saying, um, "I really liked your Doctor Who episode. Would you like to write for Marvel Comics?" So that's all you have to do.
0: <laughs> I, I think if uh, any anything with Mark Miller that comes into my inbox, I just automatically assume it would be spam, and because there's no way, there's no way. Oh, I see. I see
1: what was you that, mean. Yeah, right, was,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. was that was that really exciting? Like you got a personal email from Mark Miller?
1: Yes, it was exciting. I'm not going to sit here go, oh, no, no, that was just an average day, dear. You know, <laughs> Brian Bendis the other day sent me an email. <laughs> uh, we would just learned that you're more of a fanboy.
2: Ed than Brubaker is brew
1: baker's never off the internet chat now. What, what am I going to do?
2: <laughs> um, I. I had a question I wanted to ask him, and Paul Gonel Tobia, me so. This is the second most tedious thing he finds to talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: yeah, we're going, going
2: down the list, yeah. it? <laughs> um, I, Just this is just for the writers in the room. It, it's for me. Um, I'm just curious with with logistics on a Doctor Who episode. Like, how how long do you get to write one, and how much how much are you left to your own devices, and how much you told? It's got to be on this planet with yeah. you know, this thing. I think
3: it varies. I mean, I think that we went through a process that was rather longer than than was normal, because, I mean, we were talking about working on the show from end of 2003 really until the end of 2004 while still going up to publicity from sort of mid-2005-ish. So... You know, And that was for, you know, both of us for that one, it was, it was one single episode. So that was, you know, 45 minutes stretched out over 18 months. And it meant that, and it, it's not a bad thing, actually. It means that what you do is you write a draft, and then you have time to write other drafts and more drafts. And I remember at certain points, actually, what would happen, which would be frustrating, if I'm honest. You, you'd write a draft, and they'd have, it, and have a meeting, and they'd say things like, It's great, we really like this one, we could film this tomorrow. However, we've got six months to go. Do another one. <laughs> and, you say, and you say, well, all, all right. And they say, no, really. I mean, see what happens. So you do another one. And they say, this is awful. And you say, oh, really? I say, this is now a crisis script. And you say, right. And they say, well, can't we go back? And you can't go backwards. <laughs> got, to, got to move forward. And I say, I kind of did go backwards. I said, no, no, no it's fine. We'll, we'll find a way out. And, and you suddenly actually find that occasionally you just think, if only actually we just sort of stopped earlier. And I... And that, that is often a TV way. I mean, Born and Bred, not to mention Born and Bred, because it's a, it's a good show, really, honestly. I mean, try and watch it. Try and catch it on DVD. It's probably in the ABC shop. Um, when, when, actually, it when, is. I've seen it. And I thought, why is it here and not in my house? When, when you but,
1: say try and watch it, do you, do you mean start watching it and see if you can? The,
3: the, the problem is, is that... No one has yet reached episode four without jabbing spikes into their eyes. It's very annoying. But no- You see them all over Britain, the born-and-bred victims with the spikes
1: in their eyes.
3: But the only thing, actually, I'd say about it, which is a, the sort of opposite of that in a funny way, is that I used to dread script meetings because you'd go and meet execs, not mentioning names on born-and-bred, because they're lovely people. And you would often get notes that you just thought what do you mean? And they'd say things like, I, I, had a, I had a note on Born and Bread, not to mention Born and Bread, <laughs> where, they, where the exec said to me once, I had a dream last night, and you say, <laughs> "Right," you said, I thought, aren't weddings pretty? Make your episode now about a wedding. I said, Aww. but I've done this episode about, I said, "Yeah, put a wedding at the centre of it now. Maybe also, I thought, a paraplegic boy on the roof of a burning hospital. <laughs> about commit suicide and i said well how did he get there he said well you're the writer it's your story <laughs> so i had to you know so i sort of he winched himself up i thought there must be a easier way for him to commit suicide <laughs> than this and the thing is on doctor who what would happen is that you a meeting with russell and russell even if he were destroying you even if he said to you you know actually really you know that this this last draft you've taken has really gone down the wrong direction i always left a meeting with russell always excited by the possibility of what to do next, because he, he does make you actually turn... He, he's very, very engaged with it. He gives you enormous possession of what you're doing. The thing he said to us all at the beginning was that, of series one, he said... And, and looking back, it's very unrealistic, but he said, if you ever have a problem with this script, if you ever think that, what, that, your, that your story's moving in a direction that you don't like, tell me and we'll fix it. And that can't work in TV, but Russell intended that. So what happens is you go in there, and he gave us all... Um, a sort of little paragraph of what he wanted. In my case, it was based upon an audio I'd already written. But, but I know that, that in every single case, that paragraph gets twisted into something completely different because, actually, that's how you write. And Russell and loved that.
2: What would that paragraph have been? How would that, how, what would he have boiled? Well, your one's down. actually the best example, I think. Oh,
1: yeah, mine was, um, um, this is the um, stark dramatic play-for-today-style episode with no monsters and no special effects. Which makes my whole life into a sort of shaggy dog story, really. Um, <laughs> I get to write Doctor Who, there's no monsters and there's no special effects. And at one point where, um, you know, uh, it looked like it would ha- it would also be the one in which the Doctor would take um, some time off to allow Chris a break. So it was very nearly the one with no monsters, no special effects, and no Doctor. <laughs> and um, But uh, the paragraph um, said that... Um, Rose um, watches Pete Tyler, her father, die over and over in a car crash while the doctor discovers from his friends what a good man he was. And that's, it's interesting because that's the, you know, everything else is, it has look, one of those many different flavors that Russell tries to put across all of season one of Doctor Who. It's an attempt to do something which is not action and adventure. And, and I'm, I'm quite flattered to have been given that one, actually. It's, um,. But I immediately sort of said, well, how about we use a time paradox to make that happen? And the time paradox could produce monsters, couldn't it?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to admit, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's that... Because, you know, they call it the series Bible and you get it. And it's not like the Bible at all. You know, it's, it's quite thin. And you don't actually have to worship anything. But... Um, <laughs> But it was that. Oh, well, you really do. Except, except obviously, Russell. Um, not that I Russell will ever say that.
1: <laughs> not me. Yeah. I didn't um, say That's Rob Shim no, all the way but, there. But
3: <laughs> I want to say that, that Paul mouthed that to me so that if Russell is actually listening to this, it was Paul. And um, uh, he,
1: he, he,
0: he sent us an email, he doesn't listen. But, but the thing
3: about yeah. it is that, is that I went through that Bible, you know, and I went through the episodes, and you could actually see because I knew the other writers what was going to be offered to each. It was easy for me because he just wrote at the bottom in pen, you've already written this, ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, was partly true and partly not. But, but I really envied your one. I mean, I really wanted to have your one. I, I read that and actually I wanted to go write to Russell and say, give, give Paul my Dalek story and make him do that. Because I, I love that Twilight zone thing. And also, I don't actually like monsters very much. And I got really worried that I'd be writing an episode about people running down corridors away from a monster. Which I did, <laughs> <laughs> and, and very well. You did that very
0: well.
2: Yeah, but there's, also, there's not much dialogue guest, in I'm yeah, sucking yeah. up to I the those corridors. Yeah.
3: though. Oh, I, they, I believe they were. They really. really, they really looked like corridors. <laughs> the, um... <laughs> I, am actually there. If if you watch Dalek and you see those corridor scenes, just off camera, I'm there, standing there, looking a bit awkward because because you know because you go on set and you think Doctor Who. I'm 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 a fan. I, you know, When I was a kid, it's, it's my episode. You go on set and you just feel so awkward in the way. And, and seeing those scenes actually where I know I'm just off camera, I find actually rather embarrassing now because I just think I'm standing there thinking, oh, you want to go back home now because it's just taken 47 takes. And they're all blaming me because it's not good enough. So it's funny that. So all those corridor scenes, yeah, they are corridors. I'm at the end of them watching people fall over. It's great, actually. That bit was great because there's no dialogue. It's really good. Except argh. <laughs> but that, that would
0: have happened anyway If you were writing the episode no, Where you watched Rose no. Watching her father die
3: Over and I, over and I, over, I, over again I, don't, I wrote a very good arg Because <laughs> I, I actually realised How many A's you need And how many H's Some writers just use One A, one H I use lots of A's and H's Because I also think That actually looks like I worked harder on it <laughs> and, and you are from the theatre it's true It's, it's theater. a theatre it's, it's, it's thing did yeah. you, Were you more worried Though having the Dalek Was it
2: a bit like you know, hand, Handling the silverware Were you worried That you might That, that sounds euphemistic Doesn't it really Handling the, the silver. Yeah. I did that at the same time If I hadn't done that We would have been Yeah I was, was That's a... what
1: you don't do want you feel like you were
2: Handling the silverware You don't I, want that I, In a I, Cyberman
1: yeah. story That's the you know, I, I feel I actually, so yeah, dirty yeah, now A,
3: a bit I, I actually I found it a bit intimidating And I said to Russell early on Can I not write a TARDIS scene Because I can't do the TARDIS And the Daleks And he said all right. I mean, I think he's a bit amused by my question, but I, I, I suddenly found the idea that the first day of... I think we all had this. I know Stephen Moffat said it quite a lot at the time. Too. He would email us and complain in the way he does. And he would say things like, you know, writing, you know, scene one, int, TARDIS console room, a, a control room, and, you know, doctor, and he has a line. You go, whoa, You walk around <laughs> the house saying, oh, I guess that's, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous that I'm actually writing this. So writing the Dalek was... I didn't write like Exterminate for about two drafts, because I just thought, it sounds so naff, um, and if I don't write that, maybe it's not really a Dalek, and then, of course, they took them away from me, and I thought, I want that Dalek back, which is <laughs> odd, but no, exactly that, you actually sort of, you almost feel that you can't write the icon, the icon actually slows you down a bit.
0: How, how do you get the, the Dalek voice, because the Dalek actually has a lot of dialogue in that in that episode? I was
3: so relieved, uh, a mate of mine, Nick Briggs, who was, you know, who's now running the Big Finish Audios, um, and he's a very good friend, and, and he does the direct voices on those audios, and he's a very good actor. And in the old show, with no disrespect to anybody who actually did them, Roy Skelton, Peter Hawkins, people like that, I mention them by name in case they're listening, because I think you're great. <laughs> but, with the others. but also, but Nick is, you know, he, he's a good theatre actor as well, and I knew I wanted, it, it was a lead character, not just a monster voice. And I gave it tons of dialogue, worrying enormously it would just be done by a voiceover artist not re, you know, after the event, not really engaged with the, with the project. And what they insisted upon having was when they cast Nick, which was a great relief to me, um, Nick and Chris would be on set rehearsing, which is quite rare for TV, back and forth. Chris Eccleston, who is a very um, intense actor in many ways, um, and I mean that in the best possible way, was, 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 was said very early on to Nick, this scene with a monster, I see it as being a scene about... Um, a man surviving a concentration camp, meeting one of the wardens years later. And Nick said, all right, because that's what you say to Chris Eccleston. And also because...
2: <laughs>
3: and so they would rehearse that. And so the the intensity back and forth between the two of them actually makes my episode work, I think. And I think on the page, if I'm honest, those scenes don't crackle in the same way. But But Chris's approach to it and doing it in that sort of way and actually having the room to do proper Dalek dialogue rather than just having it saying, you know, sort of just long words in, in one sentence bursts, as Daleks traditionally do, was very helpful.
0: One thing I noticed in re-watching your episodes in research, yes, I did research, <laughs> uh, but yeah, re- re-watching your episodes and, and the thing that really struck me about uh, Dalek and, and about human nature, uh, as well, is these are uh, bringing real emotion into into science fiction, where a lot of people just Forget to put that in. A lot of times, it is just machines and monsters and explosions, but the story is still in the emotion. I mean, the the Dalek could be could be an an old concentration camp prisoner. It could be. It is that emotion that
1: is that is driving the story still. Well, a a Dalek it always has been a a metaphor, and um, the fact that it's become this sort of ancient beloved object for children over decades. You know, this actually put the metaphor back into the Daleks. You know, it stopped being a Dalek and became a fascist again. And, um,
3: you but, know, but a
0: sympathetic fascist. like We but, sympathize but, with but that. That was the hardest
3: is... thing about it was, I mean, when I got the commission, I went and told my wife, you know, I said, guess what? You know, I'm doing the Daleks. She said, oh, it's a shame. And I said... <laughs> Cause, because, because my wife's quite cool, actually, and doesn't really like to do very much. And, she, and I said, Why? She said, because they're rubbish. She, mm-hmm. said, she said that they're just jokes. And the thing is, is that she was right. They really were. At that stage, dykes were doing things like ads for Kit Kats, chocolate bars, oh. and things. And the fact is, you know, they, they'd been invented to be um, a representation, as, as Paul says, a metaphor for totalitarianism, and had become toys for kids. And it was about going back. And I, I made my wife, because yeah, I, I can do that. Um, I, 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 I uh, made her make a list of all the things that she thought were crap about them, and we tried to deal with them one by one. You know, things like this stupid sink plunger. So I had it take off someone's face. You know, I just thought that was quite funny. Um, it, it was about trying to make sure that you didn't actually play the sort of iconic joke. The one thing they actually they really wanted, and they said, put this in the script, is about it going up the stairs, which the TV show I had already done, but they wanted to redo it. They wanted to actually, you know, emphasize this is not a joke. And, I th- you know, and that, that was the hardest thing about it, actually.
0: Cause... And, Paul, with uh, Human Nature, I mean, you, you spoke before about how horrible it would have been to write an episode that uh, didn't have any monsters and didn't have any time to didn't have any special effects, and then Human Nature, that, that one episode, before the family comes down, uh, has no monsters or special effects.
1: Or... Well, apart from the scarecrows.
0: Oh, <laughs> the scarecrows are fantastic, though!
1: <laughs> but, um... but, 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 yeah, they, I mean... It, it did start off on that basis, actually. Russell said to me, we, we can do this really cheaply in that um, there are no obvious effects needed. And actually, most of the effects are done in camera as it en- ends up. You know, that's a real lighting rig descending in front of the guy who becomes son of mine in the forest. It's added to a little bit with um, computer effects later on, but that's mostly really there. And it's mostly done in camera, which I think is what gives those episodes such a wonderful quality in terms of direction. Um, Charles Palmer is a bit of a genius and um, he really did give it a, a kind of old-fashioned feeling of actually being there through doing most of the stuff there and then. So, yeah, there really, there really was a kind of not very many effects thing, but for that it really it helps it, I think.
0: And for, for both of you, you've both done adaptations of your own work. Mm. Uh, how do you approach that? How, how do you, well, I've, I've invented this story for this particular medium and now i need to adapt it for
3: for a brand new medium yeah you 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 throw it away i mean actually partly because the the audio i adapted it from was for a fan audience who got all the jokes and i knew this had to be an episode for an eight-year-old audience who would actually probably prefer the, the slitheen i was so certain of that i mean I, I got the aliens of london scripts from from russell and the and the monsters in that were funny they were modern and they wouldn't be pepper, you know, big pepper pots, whereas we were working to a, you know, a, a sort of 45-year-old design of something which had no sense of humour and no conversation. Why would anybody now prefer something just because we tell them it's iconic from the 60s? Any kid would prefer the Sridheena, I thought. So you actually go back and you say, I have to throw away everything I've actually done. And, and that was the hardest part about it, was because it felt like... I, I, at some points, I was genuinely upset that... Um, I, I would see my friends, you know, Paul and, and Mark and Stephen, and they would be doing something utterly new. And I felt I'm kind of retreading old ground and yet not, not wanting treading this ground at all. I, I needed it to be new ground, but the old ground exists and it's very hard to avoid it. And I found that very, very frustrating. I mean, actually, I mean with human nature, I mean, that was twice as long. So was that hard?
1: Um, yeah, um, I, I originally... Got rid of almost all of human nature My my first plot draft Began with um, John Smith Waking up in bed with his wife um, Because I thought we'd done The romance in Girl in the Fireplace Mm. And uh, Russell just kept saying Back to the book, back to the book And that was I think that's the right way to do it You know, you kill your babies first And then Russell resurrects a lot Of them (laughs) So he's got lots of resurrected Babies Babies.
3: (laughs) So what you're really saying is that, is that Russell encourages infanticide and then, and then in some strange quasi-spiritual way can actually bring them back distorted.
1: So Russell would have this zombie army of babies. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're my babies. Yeah, they, they are but, your babies, yeah. But, but, but then that's why human nature worked.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We are, we are very nearly out of time, so I just wanted to ask... Doctor Who came was a massive success, I think, more than anyone perhaps expected. Mm. Uh, has this, Paul Cornell, made it easier or harder to get other genre television up? Like, Can you point to it and go, look, huge success, let yes, me do that?
1: Yes, infinitely easier. Life on Mars was in development six years before Doctor Who. Um, everything suddenly came... Um, bursting through the door at that point. British telefantasy just happened all over the place. But Life on Mars is barely, barely fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. For one thing, um, it's a a strange, askew idea. It's not the fantasy, it's that the big idea can work on television. The BBC didn't think that family viewing existed anymore before Doctor Who came along. Ten million was an incredible shock to them. Mm. It's hard to assess just how big that shock was. Um, it meant that family television came back as well, you know, that Robin Hood and uh, Primeval and all those shows that go for that demographic, you know, it's Merlin. Yeah. Will
2: Will you be able though to get something up that, that is perhaps? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying pulse necessarily, but something that is perhaps darker or for an adult audience like Pulse. John, don't mention Pulse. I, oh, sorry. Don't, don't no, mention
1: no, no, Pulse. I, I should mention that the reason we're not mentioning Pulse isn't that I, I love it. I'm incredibly proud of it. It was a pilot I had on BBC Three that was um, screened a few months ago. We, I learned two days before coming out here that it wasn't actually going to go to series. We had a panel lined up, and I thought, well, I can't spend an hour weeping in front of an audience. I'm not. And um, so we did a game of just a minute instead. But um, that's the reason we're not talking about it. Um, really love it. Wonderful cast, wonderful director, wonderful people to work with. And uh, I Had a lot of promise. Find, okay. I just hope we can find somewhere, some, something to do with it. it might, we might be able to. Audio plays. Uh, either another medium or maybe a, another broadcaster. We're, we're exploring our options. Oh, good. So it's not, it's not dead? Um, it's, it's sort of a halfway... The baby. It's a dead baby. It's a dead baby. And
0: on that dead baby note... <laughs> well, that's jolly. <laughs> OK, I, I've got a question about the BBC in, in general. Uh, how how much does the BBC work towards uh, nurturing new talent coming up? Uh, Paul, I know you won a prize in 1990 and then uh, got something produced and then you were
1: just... Changed to the BBC from then on? Or how does that work? Oh, by no means. My second piece of television was for ITV. Um, yeah, the, the BBC are pretty good at finding new talent. I think there's all sorts of other things that could be done as well. It, it's hard to
3: say because we're, we're not new talent anymore. No, here. it's no. right. I mean, actually, it's shocking to realise just how old we are. Yeah, we're, um, we're old talent. We are old talent. And... I was approached by the BBC back in the early 90s to try doing sitcoms and things. And it never worked out because I was... You know, I was in theatre, but you know they would see the theatre play, So I knew I was actually being approached quite a lot. And I backed off TV for a long time because I just I had that theatre urge to try and be very, very pure and snobby and a bit silly, really. And eventually I was I went to ITV first actually, and I worked at ITV for a few months. And the BBC got me from there. And I found that at that point I was um, that they were in a weird position of seeing me as a as a new young writer who was twice as old as anybody else who was there on any of their projects. And I think I found that a bit, a bit awkward, actually, because I think they wanted to see me someone that they could groom, and I was already a bit stuck in my ways. Like, you know, like a mature-age student. You know, and I had a beard, and I obviously had grandchildren, and I smoked a pipe, and, and all those things that, <laughs> that actually in some ways were rather putting off when everybody else in the, in the meeting rooms you know, wore their baseball caps the wrong way around and, uh, and actually seemed to call everyone yo. You know, so it was very strange.
2: You're like a Werther's original ad, aren't you, Rob?
3: I, I like Werther's originals, yeah, because the thing about them is that they stay, they sort of stay in your mouth. You can suck them for ages.
2: We we really uh, out is, of time. Is that, it? is that it? That really is it. Yeah, Final that's question: that's Which story did you not write that you wish you had for Doctor Who? Uh,
1: blink. I'd have won the Hugo. <laughs>
3: It's a toss-up, actually, genuinely, between human nature, which I absolutely adore, or actually more likely now, because I could maybe have done it because of my theatre stuff, Midnight. Because so I think Midnight is sensational. And I, and I saw that and thought, I would have loved to have tried a, a long theatrical episode like that. I'd have loved Midnight.
2: So uh, Rob, uh, sorry, I was Rob's book is Love Songs for the Shy and Cynical. You should go and buy it. I forgot to ask Paul what he wants to plug. What are we... I, I've got a, a novel out from tour next year, so far untitled. So look for an untitled novel by Paul Cornell. I think we're all looking forward to that. We would like to thank AussieCon for for having us. David Ashton from Sample and Hold, who helped record this. Thank you, Josh. You can find the Boxcutters podcast through iTunes or directly from our website at boxcutters.net. Uh, enjoy the rest of the con, and hey.
0: Let's be careful out there. Thank you. John John, you, you did forget to say that your name is John Richards Yeah, it is John Richards And my name is Josh Connell. Yeah, thanks. And that's uh, Paul Cornell Yeah And Rob, Rob Schumann
1: yeah. yeah Go home Hi, this is Pete Smith You've been listening to or have
0: just missed Gutters.